Hello, Twisted listeners. Hello. Welcome to True Crime, Twisted Teacher Style. Yes, yes, indeed. Kim, you said that yours is intense. It's kind of, yeah, a little bit. Why don't you go first? Indeed. This case fascinated me. And I've, I've listened to this on, I think, Night Classy has covered it, and so has Morbid. I'm going to tell you the story of Carl Tanzler okay. and Elena de Hoyos. All right. So before I begin, I want to start with something about this, this thing that happens with people called ghost marriages, where they what? marry people. Ghost marriages. Oh, I heard you. I'm just oh. like, what? <laughs> Like, okay, so you, where you they, can't hear me. <laughs> where Sorry. they do what? They marry dead people. So sometimes it's for financial reasons. You're going to share information, but I'm just this. You cannot legally marry a dead person, right? In some places, yes. What? Yeah, I'm no. about to read. Yes. Okay, so ghost marriages. Okay, it's a three thousand year old tradition of wedding the dead, and it's still a thing in China. It well, you can marry two deceased people. And sometimes they will marry somebody for financial reasons after they've died. And there's a picture of a woman literally like in a wedding dress near an urn marrying whoever was in the urn. Does the dead person have to have agreed when he was still alive, he or she was still alive that when they died, they were marrying this person? The idea of marrying a dead person is older than Magna Carta and it's called a ghost marriage. Um, so imagine a world where where till death do us part wasn't taken literally, where you could be married after death and even get married after you'd already passed on. Um, it's called necrogamy and or marriage that takes place after death. And it's still happening through the form and frequency of the practice varies across the globe. The fact remains that in some places, the right to marry never ends even beyond the grave. So in modern times, the most prominent still surviving legal acknowledgement of necrogamy the, I don't know if I'm necro- necrogamy? Necro- necrogamy. Like monogamy, necrogamy. necrogamy. So the most prominent legal acknowledgement of necrogamy is a French law, which dates back to 1959. Um, the law came following the collapse of the Malpasset Dam, which left one woman's fiance dead. And the grieving bride to be pleaded with the government to let her marry him anyway. It's unclear whether Jodart's social capital or the plentiful media coverage of her case swayed the French government, but within a month, Article 171 of the Civil Code was written. It says that, for some reasons, we can authorize the solemnization of marriage if one of the spouses died after completion of, of official formalities, marking it un- unequivocally consent. So here's uh, the picture. Like you have a, if you have a marriage license already, yeah, basically. Possibly. So it doesn't entail any right of um, succession for the benefit of the surviving spouse and no matrimonial property is deemed to have existed between the spouses. They can get oh. pension insurance claims. Oh. That's going to segue into a kind of twisted understanding of Mr. Tansler, Carl Tansler. I have not heard of him. Okay, so he was German. So basically, this is like some people have a hard time letting go, and he may have had the hardest time. All right. So in 1931, Dr. Carl Tanzler fell in love with a patient he was treating for tuberculosis. Thank you. I cannot speak. This love made him determined to keep his patient alive, which he attempted to do quite literally by removing her corpse from the mausoleum it was housed in and holding it together with coat hangers, wax, and silk. He had married in 1920, and he had a family. 
Um, but then he met a Cuban-American woman named Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos. And she walked into the hospital and that was all she wrote. Um, she was a dream come true. So she was born in 1909. She was a daughter of a cigar maker and a homemaker. Hoyos was raised in a large family and was brought to the hospital by her mother because of tuber tuberculosis. Jesus Christ. So basically, he had these kind of premonitions about a stunning, beautiful, dark-haired woman who was predestined to be his own. And so when he saw her, she came so close to his fantasies that he just kind of lost his shit and that he felt that their love was meant to be. So her prognosis was not great. And so um, it tu tuberculosis was fatal at this time. Mm -hmm. And and they didn't have enough to treat. And so he was determined to save Hoyos, used a variety of specialty-made tonics, elixirs, and medicines in an effort to do so. Um, so he was in the home. He's showering her with gifts. He's telling the family he loves her. He's giving her these elixirs. And she, you know, despite the efforts, um, she died in 1931, leaving her family and newly obsessed caretaker. He insisted on buying a stone mausoleum in Key West. So he he takes her there. He gets a mausoleum. He's telling family, I got this. I got you. I, I got the whole thing going. He actually hired a mortician to prepare the body. Hoyo's family didn't realize a couple of things. One of them that the tomb would remain in his position. Possession. <laughs> his possession. Oh, my God. So, um, but anyway, he had he had access to the body. And um, he visited the grave every night for almost two years. And he lost his job. So that that habit stopped. While her family did consider this drastic change in behavior to be a bit strange, they couldn't have imagined the reason behind it. So here's kind of where he kind of lost a little his mind a little bit, well, a little bit more. In April of 1933, he removed Hoyo's body from the mausoleum, no longer requiring him to make his nightly visits to the graveyard, as she now will be housed in his home. Oh, my God. Okay, so this is the picture that's very famous that... That's her after like so many years. Um, yeah. So basically, she's been dead two years. And he ew. had to make, huh? I said, ew, like she oh, had to have smelled right. like. So now he had to maintain the body. So he did this as needed inside of an old airplane he had repurposed into a laboratory in his house. And did you say an airplane? Yeah. I said he had a inside of an old airplane. So now they're calling this DIY tricks to keep the body young. <laughs> <laughs> he used plaster of Paris and glass eyes to maintain the integrity of her face, as well as coat hangers and other wires to stabilize her skeletal frame. He stuffed oh her torso God. with rags and he covered the scalp with bits of real hair. And he, he kept putting perfume on her and flowers oh. and disinfectants to keep the rotting odor at bay and he usually he put mortician's wax to Hoyo's face in an effort to keep her alive there was something he did do to her body so that he could have intercourse with it oh so he dressed the corpse in a dress and gloves and jewelry and he placed the body in his bed he shared the bed with the dead body for seven years Seven years? Seven freaking years. Ah. Uh. 
So they thought he was a recluse and that it's he's buying perfume. And, you know, at that time, it was probably really, really weird. Yeah. Do you um, think? So here's <laughs> here's where he kind of went down. A boy is walking by and he Carl is like, maybe it's their anniversary. Maybe he's whining and dining her, but he's dancing with the dead body. And so the boy says, why is that man dancing with a doll? Um, uh, then Hoyo's family is like, huh? Hmm. Hoyo's sister shows up at Tanzler's home in 1940. There okay. she found what she believed to be an effigy of her departed sister. She did not think it was actually her sister. Oh, the doll. And then they, the, after the authorities came, they figured out the doll was in fact Hoyos herself. And then he got arrested for grave robbing. I think there's more to grave robbing than to this. I mean, there's more than just grave robbing. There's so many issues here. There are a lot. So the autopsy there. revealed the intricacies of his work, which included a paper tube inserted between the legs, forming a makeshift vagina. Um, he said he he never admitted to committing any necrophilia. But I mean, it, it it would I would I mean I would go out on a limb to say yeah, it's not a big stretch to go from. <laughs> it's not a big stretch. <laughs> I mean, no, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean it that way. I know I'm I took it that like... way because I'm sick. Um, <laughs> so he was found competent to stand trial. So his ultimate plan was going to fly Hoyos high into the stratosphere, so that radiation from outer space could penetrate their tissues and restore life to her body. So basically, by the time they got to court, the statute of limitations had expired. So then, then they took the body. She's been on display where people come to see, came to see the corpse for themselves. And then finally, they did lay it to rest. Carl got a lot of compassion. And from they, saw him as a, they saw him as a romantic. So would people think I was your best friend ever if I kept your body? <laughs> So that we could talk still, like okay, like well, you people... prop me up to do the with the microphone like, to do the podcast. yes, like weekend to Bernie's. I mean, would well, you know, we think did I was talk the best about friend ever burial rituals. So we did talk about burial so rituals. That might be where the connection is because some people actually put them in whatever scene that they were always doing. So you would put me with nice shoes and you just prop me up with a microphone. So he died in 52 after they found him after three weeks. So I, and here's the dude. He doesn't look like a sicko. No, more, most people don't look like sickos. Yeah. I don't know if he had a secret ceremony with her, but I think, I mean, to go to this extent, I mean, there's no dating sites. It's not like he could have like gotten onto match.com for, you know, psycho doctors or corpse.com i mean you can't like yeah that's taken like farmersonly.com to a whole new level it really has it really did because you know dead bodies they're not really on the on the web but on the, the world smell, wide web the smell the alone. smell alone you're exactly right i'm imagining that he like pickled her i don't know what he did but embalmed okay no he did have a mortician prepare the body so she did if they had embalming fluid i'm sure that she was prepared to in the showing. traditional way right. in, of that time period, not with coat hangers, rags, and um, mortician's Silk. wax, like a, a buku yeah. of mortician's wax, and glass eyeballs. That's you were right. That is really <laughs> freaking creepy. 
All right. So mine is not like, mine's more just mysterious. So back on um, the afternoon of November 24th, 1971. Okay. Um, a nondescript man, like pretty much if you describe most... <laughs> is it it's contagious i've given if you, you the... describe most men five ten five eleven um dark hair kind of a receding hairline like his description is nothing that doesn't fit tons of people right so it was this man a nondescript man he was Calling himself Dan Cooper, he approached the counter um, at the airport in Portland, Oregon, He no, Northwest Orient Airlines, um, and he used cash to buy a one-way ticket on Flight 305 that was bound for Seattle, Washington. What's interesting is that's only a 42-minute flight. It's super close. So, and then this becomes one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in FBI history. So he appeared to be like in his mid forties. He had on a suit, a black tie, a white shirt. So he gets on the plane because back then, like you didn't have to have a license or anything to fly. Nobody was really checking. You just bought a ticket and got on the flight. Um, He orders a drink, a bourbon and soda while the flight was waiting to take off. And then a short time after 3 p.m., he hands the stewardess a note that basically indicates that he has a bomb in his briefcase and he wanted her to sit with him. So oh. at first, when she he slid, slid her the note, she was like thinking it was a flirtatious note, like his phone number or whatever. So well, she was thinking the bomb was the bomb. <laughs> yeah. So he had her sit down. He shows her, he opens his briefcase and shows her this glimpse of like wires and red colored sticks. And he demanded that she write down what he tells her. So soon she's taken a note up to the captain of the plane that demanded four parachutes and $200,000 in $20 bills. (laughs) That's not unreasonable at all. And 200,000 in 1971 with inflation and all that stuff would be about he was asking for what would now be the equivalent of like 1.2 million. Okay, in 20s. In 20s. Yeah, at least it was 200,000 in 20s, not Mm. 1.2 million. yeah. Yeah. So soon she's taking that note up to the captain of the plane and Like, they continue on. The flight lands in Seattle, which was part of the plan. And the hijacker exchanged the flight's 36 passengers for the money in the parachutes. He kept... (laughs) How many parachutes? He wanted four. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Sorry. He kept several crew members, and the plane took off again, and he ordered them to set course for Mexico City. So somewhere between Seattle and Reno, it was a little after 8 p.m. at night, he does the, like, unthinkable or the incredible. He jumps out of the back of the plane with a parachute and the ransom money. The pilots landed safely, but Cooper has disappeared into the night, and, like, nobody to this day knows what happened to him. So... 
The FBI learned of the crime while it was happening and immediately opened an extensive investigation that literally lasted from 1971 until 2016. Oh, my God. So they um they called it its name was Norjack which stood for the Northwest hijacking. They interviewed hundreds of people. They tracked leads across across the nation. They scoured the airplane for evidence. And by the 5 year anniversary of the hijacking they had considered more than 800 suspects. And eliminated all but two dozen from consideration. Because like I said, this guy looks like every guy. So there's one guy um, that they still suspect could be the guy. His name was Richard Floyd McCoy. And (laughs) I mean, ironically, he was tracked down and arrested for a similar airplane hijacking. And he also escaped by parachute less huh. than five months after Cooper's flight. So whether he got the idea from the other case or whether he did it. he So they landed he, and gave him the money. No. no. How did he get the money? They brought him the money when they switched. They landed in Seattle. Okay. All right. 36 people off the plane. He kept the crew, and they had and to he, bring him in the okay, money. You yeah. told me that. Um, why? What did he do with the other three parachutes? <laughs> so that's the weird thing. Um, the parachutes that he got, he asked for four, and he jumped with two. I don't understand why he jumped with two, including one that was used. That was not a real parachute. Like it was used for instruction and had been sewn shut. As one of the ones that he jumped out. They thought that this guy, I mean, obviously another, another hijacker who also jumps out with a parachute, but he doesn't match the um, physical description that was provided by um, everybody, the flight attendants. And it says for other reasons, I'm not sure what that is. Hmm. So, a lot of people think that he didn't survive the jump from the plane because the parachute he was using could not be steered. His clothing and footwear were not suitable for like a rough landing or the fact that it was November and where he jumped was like over a mountainous type. Oh my of- God. Yeah. So they think it would have been like he that he wouldn't have lived. This theory was given an added boost in 1980 when this young boy finds a rotting package full of $20 bills, $5,800 in all, that matched the ransom money's serial number. So it was definitely money, but it was only $5,800. But he could have taken it. Animals could have the wind. Yeah. Who knows? I I wonder if he got to keep some of it. The kid, yeah, mm-hmm. I, you should. I mean, so what's interesting is that, like, nobody knows what happened to him, but they continued to investigate. They think that even if he had um, managed the jump, had survived the jump, that he would have found himself in a battle with the elements. It was a bad weather night. Um but there's this other thing that's kind of cool. For some reason, he took off his necktie, his tie 
on the plane. I guess one doesn't parachute in a right. with a with a tie. And he on. could buy all the ties he wanted with all the twenties. This is true. Mm-hmm. An investigator said he has made a breakthrough in the investigation. He said that the black tie that belonged to Cooper that he left on the plane has the answer. So the tie, oh, they tested it for like um, DNA and all kinds of trace evidence. And there were three important particles that he considered very significant. Um, It was a type of commercial DNA that pointed to a very specific company, only one company, and then not only this one company, but one division within the company at a very specific time. It's crazy what they can do with science. I I know. Amazing. So he analyzed, this guy analyzed 2017 lab reports that showed an abundance of this unique metal particle. Um, It he was able to match it up with, like I said, one, and it was a Pennsylvania metal manufacturing company that was operational at that time and that had special patents on specific metals and alloys. Um, He contacted the company and looked into any employees who worked there in the 1960s and 70s. And he even traveled to Pittsburgh where the company was based. And he was able to narrow it down to eight researchers who worked on those specific metal type. Wow. That is unbelievable. I know it's so science is pretty cool. cool. I wish I was better at science than I am. I I hate to say that when I watched Dexter, I, I, I really was fascinated with the blood spatter science. Yeah. You're kind of creepy. I know I am. Um, (laughs) So he does this press conference and Ellis, that's the guy, the investigator, said that a retired company manager recently told him that there was an employee named Vince Peterson that fit the bill for his description and was someone who regularly traveled to the Pacific Northwest on business for the company during that time period. Hmm. He died in 2002. So the investigator spoke to his son, who is like, there's no way that was my father. Like, my father was not that type of person who would jump out of an airplane. I don't know. But we'll never know. Well, I think a lot of us don't know our families very well. Yeah. And then they talk about the weather. It was stormy in the Pacific Northwest, and he made his jump several hours after sunset. He fell into a heavy rain and snowstorm. That would suck. Like, you got to check that shit. Um, And the clouds would have obscured where he was landing. It says, no experienced parachutist would have ever jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with a 200 mile an hour wind in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was too risky. So who knows what happened to D.B. Cooper or whoever he actually was. Jesus. So that was mine. Not really true. I I think if I was going to escape, because I don't know. It was just random. I wonder why he needed the 20s. Yeah, I don't know. There's no bones? No. Hmm. Maybe they'll find them one day. They'll find the... But then I guess they... I mean, I guess only by, like, physical evidence, like what he was wearing, etc. Except it's been a long time. Amelia Earhart. 50 years. They keep thinking they found remnants of her, and they haven't. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that story, actually, that might be a good story to tell. Yeah. 
Don't you think most people know about Amelia Earhart? Yeah, but it's fun to tell. There's probably some things that we don't they know. They don't know? Yeah, we could do I some research. When's the last time anybody thought about Amelia Earhart? When they watched Night at the Museum. <laughs> I don't know. Or if they're a fifth grade teacher because they there's a they book to teach that it. they read about Amelia Earhart and Eleanor Roosevelt. Yes. In yes. some places. I mean, unless it's been banned. <laughs> oh, well. It anymore. They, they probably did ban it. All right, everyone. Hopefully, Stay twisted. Yeah. Hopefully, twisted. you won't have nightmares and just let right. people go. Let people go. Just let them go. Exactly. All right. Bye. Bye.